We're in 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings chapter 12. While we rejoiced last week in the good things that Joash did, this little boy king, we don't know how old he was in chapter 12. We know that he was eight year, or seven years old when he began to reign, but he reigned 40 years. And we're not given his age at each of the points in the next few uh, verses and chapters. So he may have accomplished some of these things when he was 18 or 24. We really don't know. But that's okay. If it was important for us, then God would have put his age in there. But you know, it was important for us to know how old he was when he began to reign because he needed to be instructed by the priest. You don't put a seven-year-old on the throne and say, all right, young man, go to town, do your best. He needs to be guided, and we learned a lot about Christians when we're babies, when we're on milk. We need people to guide us. Even a a 50-year-old person who becomes a Christian in their 50th year of life needs to be guided, just like Joash did when he was on the throne. And we rejoiced in the good things that he did, but we also noted what he did not do during his reign. He did not remove the high places. He left them there, and the people did what people do when their hearts are inclined to sin. They sacrificed and burnt incense in those high places that had not been removed by the king who had the ability to do so. So looking down in our text, if you'll look, if you're in 2 Kings chapter 12, Look at verse 3, where we left off, and it says, But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. So further elaborating on Joash's failure to act, we see the consequences of letting those high places be, just not touching them. And while Joash let those high places be and did not burn incense in them, other people did not let them be. They did what they had been doing before. They burn incense. Now, if the high places weren't there, they couldn't burn incense in those high places. Would that have kept those wicked ones from sinning? No. They would have found another way and another place to do it. But it wouldn't be on Joash's watch concerning those buildings or those places, those high places. They couldn't say, hey, Joash, thanks for leaving those alone. That really made for a good grove worship service last night. We really burnt some incense to our false gods. Thank you for your help. We don't want to be helping people commit their sin. We're going to look at that. In fact, we're going to look at the word stumbling block. And... When we study passages that have the word stumbling block, we often think about us putting a stumbling block in someone's way. But there's another way 
that we're responsible for stumbling blocks, as we'll see in a moment. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 14, Revelation chapter 2, you may remember Jesus addressed the seven churches of Asia, and one of them was the church of Pergamos, Pergamos, and it's in verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus said to this church, after naming the good things that they had done, kind of like what we saw about Joash, the good things were named. Jesus said, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now the way Balak cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel resulted in their eating things that were sacrificed to idols and in committing fornication. And while Joash didn't actively cast a stumbling block before his fellow Israelites, he left one in their path. There was one in their path, and he saw it and he knew about it, And he left it there. He didn't do anything about it. Perhaps he hoped they wouldn't trip over it. And that's just as bad. If I see a blind man about to step into a hole, and I have the ability to do so, but I don't warn him, I intentionally don't warn him, I say, well, that's what he gets. He should have walked around it then he's going to fall into that hole, and he's probably going to be injured. And if someone said, why, why did you let that man fall into that hole? Why didn't you warn him or pull him aside and say, hey, you're about to hurt yourself? And if I were to say, I'm not the one who put the hole there. I'm not the one who's blind. I didn't push him into it. Now, that wouldn't excuse me, would it? People would say, you're just as bad. You let something happen and you could have prevented it. We can't prevent everyone from stumbling over a stumbling block. But when we can, we ought to. Because the result of that blind man falling into that hole is the same, whether I dug the hole and pushed him into it or I just let him walk into it when I had the power to keep him from doing that. And it's the same with the stumbling block, the high places. The people, the results were that the people burnt incense there and sacrificed. And whether Joash built those high places and gave them a bus ride to the front door, or whether he just left them there when he had the power to remove them, the people still burnt incense and sacrificed in the high places. So the next time you think about the stumbling block, think about it two ways. Number one, I don't want to cast a stumbling block for anyone. And two, if I see one there and it's within my power to remove it, I'm going to do that. And when it's not, then you can't do anything about it. But when it is, you have a responsibility. Verse 4 in our text, and Jehoash, now you remember that is Joash, it's the same person. And Jehoash said to the priests, 
all the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passeth the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house wheresoever any breach shall be found. Now we looked at, I read two verses just to give you some context, but let's look at verse 4. What do we know? Well, the temple was in disrepair. Just like the spiritual lives of the children of Israel were in disrepair. The condition of the temple was simply a reflection of the condition of the people. And on the other hand, what was not in disrepair? The high places. They were operating just fine. And in fact, they were well tended. You know, Haggai, the prophet, reported on this very thing in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Haggai chapter 1 verses 3 through 4 and he's speaking about the house of the Lord. And God told Haggai, Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? That means your houses have nice ceilings on them. And this house lie waste. He's talking about the Lord's house. Is it time for that? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is a resounding no. It's not time. It's never time for that. For the Lord's house to lie waste while you make sure that your house is the finest. The people in Haggai's day and in Athaliah's day spent more time and money and effort taking care of their own houses. And they did so to the neglect of the Lord's house. It was so bad that in Haggai, God said, this house lie waste. Not it needs to be vacuumed and dusted or the windows need to be clean. He said it, it's lying in waste. The word waste is the same as the word dry or desolate. And it wasn't that there was a spot on the carpet or a chair that was out of place or ashes on the floor. It lay waste. People who walk with the Lord will take care of the Lord's house. That's just a small thing. We don't think twice about it. Uh, my hope is if somebody walked into the church and they saw a mess on the floor, that they'd clean it up or get someone to help them clean it up. They wouldn't say, well, that's, I'm just going to walk around that. I didn't do that. This is the Lord's house. And we take care of it. We have people who have different assignments and different uh, duties they've agreed to do to help us take care of the inside and the outside. And taking care of the Lord's house is not just keeping it clean or maintained or paying the bills. Those are all important. But taking care of the business that's to be done in the Lord's house. Evangelizing, discipling, encouraging, loving, warning one another and, and so forth. They're equal. So for us not to take care of the Lord's house physically and spiritually is also to lay a stumbling block before each other. And what's worse is when the neglect of the Lord's house, no matter where it is, and the spiritual affairs of the Lord's house is done 
by those who take great care of their own house and have the finest of everything, but don't worry about the Lord's house, that's when it's worse. Joash realized that the temple needed to be repaired, just like the people's walk with God needed to be repaired. Both had to be done. So in the effort to repair the Lord's house, Joash first addressed the financial part of it. Without money, it's difficult and sometimes impossible to keep up with the Lord's house. If we don't pay the heating bill, you're going to turn into an ice cube, and we don't want that. If we don't mow the grass, we're going to be fined by the city at some point for letting it get out of hand. And in this church, we're not afraid to talk about money, but we want to be careful to deal with as God's Word does. In fact, in our text, the word money, there in verse 4, is from the Hebrew word for silver. And more than twice as much as it's translated money, it's translated as the word silver, the English word silver. And that's what money was used, or that was what was used for money in those days. In Exodus chapter 35 and verse 5, here's a good example. Exodus 35 verse 5, where the Lord spoke to Moses, and he said... Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it. An offering of the Lord, gold and silver. It's the same word for money. So you could put gold and money and brass. And that's the reference in our text. So whether you call it silver or money, it's the same thing in the text. So now we know what was to be taken up. It was money. And next we're going to look at the ones to whom the money was to be given, the priests. Because this is where the rub is right here. This is where the problem lies. A dollar bill by itself is not evil. And a gun laying over here on a cabinet is also not evil. But those grubby little fingers that touch it can turn it into something good or use it for something good or something bad. So we'll look at the silver, the money, the priests. Because in verse 5, it said, Let the priest take it to them, that is the money, every man of his acquaintance, the people they knew. There were a lot of priests, and it made sense for the people to bring it to the priests they knew, their acquaintances, and then those priests were supposed to do something with it. And as we read, that money was to be used not to make these priests wealthy, but to repair the breaches of the Lord's house. That was what Joash commanded. That's what the king said. You take all this money from these offerings, and you use that to repair the breaches of the Lord's house. This is important. What does the Bible say is the root of all evil? Is it money? It's the love of money. That's exactly right. It's the love of money. In fact, I want you, because we're going to spend a moment here taking a New Testament text and learning about this Old Testament text. So if you would, keep your place there. 
and go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as we're learning, as we're studying this passage, I want you to think about these priests who were about to receive a bunch of money from their fellow man. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as we refer to this chapter, we're going to examine something that has been a huge problem in religion dating not back to Robert Tilton or Benny Hinn, but all the way back to the Old Testament. When the priests were commanded to receive these tithe, or these offerings, it was not for their personal enrichment. Now you might say, well, of course it wasn't. Apparently, many religious leaders have thought otherwise. That these offerings and tithes people send them are for their own personal enrichment. And throughout the ages... Religious leaders have used a wicked formula to make themselves rich. I'm talking about the wicked ones. I'm not talking about godly pastors. Thank God for them. And there's just fewer and fewer by the year. But knowing that God's people, even religious but lost people, want to give their money to their favorite religious cause, these religious leaders, whether it's an Old Testament priest or a New Testament Baptist preacher, use that desire that we have to give to kingdom work, to God's work. They use that and they multiply that times their own personal greed And brother, let me tell you, those are some of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth financially. And these wicked religious leaders tell people that if you'll send your money to me, we'll feed the poor. We'll house the homeless and we'll evangelize sinners and we'll do all of these things. Money will appear in your mailbox. You'll be financially blessed. Boy, that that one appeals to people. That tugs at their heartstrings. They think, oh, I might be rich. And so these wicked religious leaders lie to people. And rather than telling them, hey, I'm about to take your money and run. I'm about to benefit tremendously because I've taken your money and lied to you about where it's going. The Apostle Paul, who wrote, the book of first books of first and second Timothy, the apostle Paul knew about this in man. He knew about this tendency in man and he tells us how this happens. So you should be in first Timothy chapter six by now. We're using this passage to learn a little more about our text. Why would Joash tell the priest what they're supposed to do with the money? Now look in verse eight. Verse 8, because you first see the positive command from Paul. Having food and raiment, that's clothing, let us therewith be content. 
So he gives the positive command, and this is to everybody. But he's writing to Timothy specifically. Be content. That's the first command right there. If you have something to wear and something to eat, be content. Now that's a pretty low standard for contentment, isn't it? Yet I can tell you this for a fact, from personal experience, that most Christians, I'm not talking about lost people, I'm talking about Christians. Most Christians I've known are not content. That's not good. They have way more than just food and clothing, and many are still not content. Many of them have large houses and nice cars, the latest electronic gadgets, other material things, and that's fine. But they're not content. Some of you are about to get presents from friends and family, and you're going to get more things to go with the more things you got last year and the year before, and you're going to have more than you can possibly wear, than you can possibly put on, play with, eat, and yet some will not be content after all of that. And the lack of contentment leads to the next stage. So look down in verse 9. And you see the word but? Don't forget that the word but is telling you that in contrast to what we saw in verse 8, we have verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Being rich in and of itself is not a sin. God bless Abram, Solomon, and many others. With great riches. It's not a sin. God was gracious to them. If you have a lot of money, God's been gracious to you. He's multiplied your your labors or your investment or has given you a career that allows you to prosper. That's wonderful. And so what tends to happen in churches, especially with these religious leaders, perhaps these priests, is they'll take a verse like verse 9 And they'll cut it out from the rest of the chapter. And they'll say, you see that? Any of you who want to be rich, you're just going to fall into temptation and a snare. Well, you know what they're leading up to? I'm going to protect you from that. You bring that extra money down here and fill this plate up, and I'll keep you from being snared in temptation. And because people are weak in in the Scriptures... They'll say, oh, hey, we don't, we don't want to fall into a temptation and a snare. Let's, let's give all of our extra to this fellow here. He'll, he's going to protect us. No, he's not. He's a charlatan. He's probably not even saved. I doubt he is if he'd do something like that to people. But if you study this in context, and meaning if you study verse 9 with verse 8, with verse 7 and 6, and then the verses after that, And with what the rest of the Bible says about it, you'll have a proper understanding of it. Because here is 
how you tie verses 8 and 9 together. Be content. But if you're not content and you will to be rich instead, then you're going to fall into all of these things. Yeah. It's not be content and don't will to be rich. You could say, man, I am very content. God's been good to me. And this year I have a goal for my business, and that is to double it, double our sales and hire more people and provide more jobs and make better products. Good. You can do that and be content. But if you say, I'm not content. I'm not going to be content with what I have. I want more. That's the will to be rich that's being talked about right here. And that is what happens when a religious leader or anyone else, but we're talking about the priest right now, when a religious leader is not content with what God gives him, but wills to be rich, then he gets on television and tells people what to do with their money, and it's unscriptural. So the word but is very important there. It's not that you're either content or you're rich. It's that you must first be content. And we're not done with this, this idea, but if you have the will to be content and are content, then being rich will neither increase nor decrease your contentment. It won't change you at all. You'll be thankful. It's always good to be thankful when God blesses you with more. But it doesn't mean that you're less content if you don't have that. Not if you're truly content the way the Apostle Paul says to be. If you're content, it won't matter whether you had much or little. It won't affect your contentment because contentment is not based upon what you have, but who you are as a child of God. But as the text teaches us, the will to be rich rather than the will to be content results in the next thing, and that is a fall. Look back down in that text in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it says in verse 9, But they that will be rich fall. They fall. And it tells us what they fall into them. And the, word, the Greek word for fall has the idea of being trapped. And it's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about an ox that falls into a pit. Now, when that ox falls into that pit, he is trapped. He can't get out without someone else's help. So the lack of contentment leads you into a pit, leads you to fall into a pit from which you cannot extract yourself. You think about that. There's another word in this same verse, in verse 9, that has the same idea of entrapment. And that's the word snare. Do you see that? But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. So fall and snare are both words that have the idea of entrapment. Entrapment. The snare is a noose. If you know what a snare is, and a little animal will get its leg caught in there, or its nose, or whatever body part it puts in there, 
and try to pull away, and that, that snare, that noose, tightens around that body part. So what does the animal do? does the same thing you fishermen do whenever you backlash a bait caster. You just pull on it instead of going, hold on a minute. i got to back this thing up and find what I call the offending loop. And once you pull that, you gently get your line out and you're free to go. If you're not a bait caster fisherman, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But our initial response is to try to pull away as hard as we can. And that's what these animals do. They don't say, whoop, my foot's caught. i got to back up, pull that snare off my foot, Gently step out of it and go on my way. And that's what people do when they're not content. They don't back up and say, hold on a minute. I'm supposed to be content. They keep pulling against the snare. I need more stuff, and I need more stuff and more stuff, and I'm not content. My church needs to be bigger, so I'm going to put on this big advertising campaign and get more money and get more people in the chair so we can get more money so we can do this. That's a snare. It uses your own effort to further and further trap you in its clutches. That's what a snare does. And don't think for a moment that you're strong enough to get yourself out of the snare that we're reading about here. Because the devil is the one who laid that for you. And you're not stronger than he is. There's only one way out of the devil's snare, and that is repentance. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in the second letter. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26. And it tells you how to get yourself out of this snare. If you're in it, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you're in it, you know it. You're saying, well, that's me. Whether you like it or not, here's the way to get out of it. He wrote, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves... If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. He has a snare and you get your foot in it, spiritually speaking, by not being content. And if you're not content with what you have, then your foot's already in that snare. And he says, hey, you'll be content if you'll have one of these. Or maybe if you get a promotion at work, then you'll be content. Or if you get a new car, you'll be content. And you know what happens? Your, your foot pulls against that snare and it tightens down a little more. And then the devil says, you know what you need? You need a new wife. You, you don't need that one you've been hanging out with. And, and pulls it a little bit more. And you can't get out of it. But Paul said... That if God grants you repentance, and it's available, it's right there. He tells you how to do it, to acknowledging the truth. And what would the truth be? You know what, Lord? I'm not content. I know why my foot's in this snare. I need to stop. I need to acknowledge the truth that I need to be content. Back up. Repentance is a turnabout, isn't it? Repentance is to change the mind. And that's how this snare is going to come off of my foot, not by my own efforts, but by acknowledging, acknowledging the truth of God's word. So this lack of contentment leads to the fall, and the fall is into temptation and a snare. But the fall is also, look in your text in verse 9, into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Many foolish and hurtful lusts. 
No, we haven't forgotten about the priest in 2 Kings. In fact, we're learning in depth about why Joash would tell them what to do with the money the people brought in. Many foolish and hurtful lusts. Do you know what the opposite of foolishness is? We've been studying it on Wednesday nights. We've been targeting it. That's right. Wisdom. That's the opposite of foolishness. Contentment comes from wisdom and it leads to more wisdom. Contentment does not lead to a fall into temptation. It never will because it comes from wisdom. Contentment does not lead to a fall into foolish and hurtful lusts. We've been studying the strange woman on Wednesday nights. Contentment in God's truth doesn't lead you to embrace the strange woman. Contentment does not create unlawful and unholy desires. In fact, this same passage we're looking at in 1 Timothy tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Look up at verse 6 there. But godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're content, if you're financially poor and you've lost all of your belongings in a fire, yet are content, then you've lost nothing. There's great gain. Oh, financially you have. In the eyes of the world, you have. But there's great gain. And just in case a person still believes after this, in case you still believe you can will to be rich rather than content, that you can fall into the temptation and the snare and into those foolish and hurtful lusts and still escape by your own efforts. Listen to the last part of verse 9 in 1 Timothy 6. It says, which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's right. The result of this fall is drowning, not escape. It's drowning. You cannot get yourself out of the snare, the temptation of the devil on your own. And if you're caught in that snare right now, don't lie to yourself. Don't lie and say, oh, Brother Andy, I really am content. No, you're not. So what does this have to do with our priests in 2 Kings 12, 4? It has everything to do with them. You can turn back there if you like. It has everything to do with them. Remember, the house of the Lord had not been in full vigor, full operation, or in repair during Athaliah's time on the throne. She was a wicked queen, and she was there eight years. That's a long time. And therefore we may conclude that the priests who lived in that day, the priests who should have experienced great gain from godliness and contentment were instead ensnared in worldly affairs, foolish lusts, temptations. And it's those priests who are going to receive the money from the people. That's why I wanted to go into depth about why it's important that Joash tell them what to do with that money. And it's those priests who, when they receive that money, need to be content enough with the food and clothing they have that they won't covet riches, that they won't will to be rich rather than willing to be content. 
and end up stealing what was supposed to be used to repair the house of the Lord. And if I may take this time to apply this vital truth to this time of year, I'd like to do it. And although not everyone celebrates this time of year in the same way, many do exchange gifts of some sort or another. And although a gift is given, whether it's this time of year or for a birthday or wedding present, whatever it might be, although a gift is given, gratitude's not always given back. And whether we know it or not, we often teach our children to be ungrateful by our own examples. A man buys a woman an engagement ring but doesn't spend a king's ransom on it. And the woman has two choices. She can be grateful or ungrateful. One of the two. If she's grateful, she won't care what the ring costs. She'll be so glad that her fiancé chose her to be his bride and gave her something to commemorate his love for her. Amen. I'm not saying go put a quarter in the gumball machine and get the ring there. But on the other hand, the ungrateful woman may receive the inexpensive ring and she'll pout. She'll compare her ring to the ring her friend has and still be unsatisfied because the ungrateful woman disregards the fact that her husband, her fiancé, chose her out of all of the seven plus billion people on this earth to be the only one to whom he gave that ring. He didn't buy a bunch of rings and pass them out. He said, it's to you, the one he loved. And when our children receive a gift, especially when they're young, we usually ask them, now what do you say, don't we? And they squeak out the words, thank you. But do we ever teach them to be grateful? Teaching them to say thank you is polite. You should do that. Your children should be taught to say thank you, you're welcome, please, yes sir, no sir, excuse me, whatever the, the rules are. They should be taught those, those things. And gratitude is more than just saying thank you. So when it comes to gratitude, do we teach them the attitude or the platitude? The attitude is... Being thankful, the platitude, that just means a cute saying. The platitude is saying thank you. And there's a difference between saying thank you and being thankful. If you don't believe me, you just watch a kid who has a long Christmas list and who doesn't get something he asked for. That child, if he expresses anything other than heartfelt gratitude, he hasn't learned or hasn't chosen to be grateful. So he pouts and whines about what he didn't get. And before you get angry with that child, ask yourself as a parent, have you taken the time to teach them or her about gratitude, about being content with what you have, or did you just tell them, say thank you, and never explain to them why we should be thankful? You know, it's not bound up in the heart of a child to be thankful. Foolishness is. But it's not bound up in the heart of any of us to be thankful. We have to be taught that. And nobody teaches it better than the Lord through his word. If you go back to the text as we close, 
Go back to the text there in 2 Kings 12, if you're not already there. We have some priests who have learned not to be grateful and content with what the Lord gave them. They were poor stewards of God's provision for at least those eight years that Athaliah was on the throne. And what they did receive wasn't enough for them in their minds to take care of the Lord's house. And therefore, they had to be specifically instructed to repair the breaches of the house. And we will pick up with verse 5 next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for just being honest with us about who we are and what we need to do. Thank you for showing us that the devil has laid snares and that we may extract ourselves from them by repentance and acknowledging, acknowledging the truth of your word and that we may learn to be grateful if we are not already so. As we go into our next hour, Lord, Brett, we pray that you bless the singing, the preaching, the fellowship that we'll have afterward. And Lord, for those who aren't able to be here today, we sure miss them. And Lord, we pray that they would just be comforted in your love and perhaps be able to watch us on Facebook and enjoy somewhat of our fellowship today.